Welcome to Digital Salsa Radio, and thank you for tuning in. I am here with Joe Neary. Joe Neary, as I mentioned before, is a prominent attorney, a national recognized leader in the Hispanic uh, space, and I must say, a good friend that I have to think that we're getting into decades of friendship, Joe Neary. Is that correct? We are, Alex. You're giving away our age, but we have been friends for a very long time. But that's okay. We look much younger than our age. So <laughs> that's true. That's you know true. Our friendship has gone into a couple of decades, I think. I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I do know this that uh, when we first met, uh, our kids were babies. And now they're grown up and my, you know, college and yeah. it's been a, a long time. It really has been. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, you and I were talking up, catching up a little bit beforehand. Yeah. My oldest son is really, we're looking at colleges. I know your older, your guys are out of college as well and they're starting their career. So it's exciting times, exciting times. Yeah. Yeah. Now I can do all those um, like trips around the world and, and now that now that college is over, I was yeah. uh, telling my wife, now I can use that to <laughs> buy my Jaguar. So, you know what? hey, you're empty nesters. Now those things that you had put off to the side, now you can go ahead and fulfill all those goals. So absolutely. Right, right, I right. imagine I will be seeing you driving down Michigan Avenue with a the the flashiest car and making a statement. So that's okay. That's right. That's right. Well, I, to, I told the. Uh, I told my wife, it's not a midlife crisis. It's a midlife enlightenment. There you go. And part of that comes with gifts. And (laughs) hey, as the kids say nowadays, you do you. So you do you. You 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 do you. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, I have to say there there are some things of nostalgia that now that that I'm older and, you know, the kids are are on in their life that, you know, I gravitate to. And, and one of them is that I am on the hunt for a 1979 uh, Trans Am. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, if I, if anybody out there has <laughs> a 1979 Smokey and the Bandit Black Trans Am, yeah. Um, yeah. dude, I would even buy a starter jacket. And really? drive down Michigan Avenue with you. <laughs> well, I tell you, you know what? This again, it reflects our age because we're both kind of of that mindset where I am thinking about some sort of a Mustang, a late 60s Mustang, maybe even some sort of a uh, you know, just just something out there, maybe have some some firing, some flames on the side or something like that, a cobra. But uh, but yeah, I, I I love that. It's you know, it's 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 interesting because. Right now, we're at a time where everybody's so focused on, you know, electric cars and they're fantastic and what they're doing for the economy or for the environment is fantastic. But there is still this nostalgia about getting an old, you know, just loud, powerful, high octane, you know, just rev up, just throwback engine. I I love that. So I, I, I hope, my friend, that in the next few years, we will be out there with our classic cars driving down Michigan <laughs> Avenue and, you know, looking the way we look. So, yeah, uh, we, what, what's the, the irony of it is that we would have extremely fast muscle cars, but with the traffic on Michigan Avenue, we don't need to drive no more than 10 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. But it That's would right. feel good. Light to light. Light to light. Lots of lights. 
right. well, you know, we'll go ahead. We'll find a back road somewhere up in Wisconsin or something like that <laughs> where we can go ahead and pedal to the metal. <laughs> okay. I'm going to call you when yeah. I get my, my, um, when I get my Trans Am, that's where it's awesome. at. And so, but good car. I like, I like your choice there. Yep. So, um, again, it's great to have you on uh, the podcast. And, you know, I, one thing I wanted to share before we get into our, our conversation, and um, Joe and I belong to an amazing community of, of leaders. Uh, Joe is a, a past president of the Chicago chapter of NARAP, National Association of Hispanic Real Estate Professionals, and also a chairman or past president of the National uh, NARAP. And I think throughout all those years that we've served together and volunteered, we've seen uh, amazing leaders. And and one of the things that I've seen is a a great evolution of the leadership and power that we see of of our colleagues online and podcasting, which here we are today is, is a new, um, uh, a new thing that's, that I think has uh, amplified the message from from content creators on social media that brings it alive. And it's great to see a community emerge within our NIRAP and Latino family. You know, if you Google, I mean, I would think maybe like five years ago, we would find very little content on iTunes. And now we have actually a community within NIRAP of podcasters and, and content creators. Um, how, what's your thoughts as far as you know, the, the ability to spread a message and tell a story, it's kind of like citizen journalists and it's amazing. It's incredible. You know, these, all of these new mediums that exist and, and let me take a step back though, Alex, because I have to acknowledge you as an incredible leader in your own right, because you also, you founded our Chicago chapter at NAREP, um, a, a Chicago chapter president and a national NARA president. So I have to say kudos to you and thank you, Alex, for the, the legacy that you started there. So I, I want to thank you and acknowledge that. But yeah, you know, it, it, and I am not tech savvy by any means, Alex. I am, I'm the opposite of you. If we were on a spectrum, you're the tech savvy guy. I'm on the other side. But I know enough to recognize just how powerful these new mediums are. And the reality is that also during my time as NAREP national president, when I really had a chance to meet people across the country and visit chapters, I really got to see the power of social media within the Latino community. And so what you're talking about right now, how we have, you know, just you have now this whole catalog of Latino influencers, Latino speakers, and, you know, and what they're doing in terms of the content that they're posting, whether it be blogs, whether it be YouTube channels, whatever, it's amazing. It's amazing because now you have the ability to impact so many folks, so many individuals in our community. One of the things that I think in our community, you know, it's kind of a common theme that we hear repeated is that there aren't enough resources for our folks, or they don't know where to go. I think that's really changing. And I think social media, I think, again, the different types of medium that exist out there, um, I think that really is allowing us to go ahead and develop more resources within the community, right? And it's amazing to me, I I think back, you know, um, just over the last few years before the pandemic, it was always interesting when I would talk to folks. So in the real estate space, title companies, when you would do your closing and you'd get a closing package, they were offering discs, you know, when discs were still a thing. (laughs) And a lot of my Latino clients wouldn't take the discs and they'd say, you know, I don't have a computer. And I'd say, oh, okay. But then when we would be sitting there 
they would be showing me all these like videos and things that they did and that they posted. And I'd say, how'd you do that? And they're like, well, I don't have a computer, but my smartphone, here's my computer. And they were just so incredibly advanced. And so I was on a, uh, I was on a national committee a few years back and Latinos log in and their usage of smartphones and of social media is so much higher than other groups. And so they're very, very advanced. So that I think is a good thing because again, back to your original point, it allows us to spread the message to a lot more people, allows us to be resources to so many more people. I mean, even for me, you know, one of the things where I was able to kind of gain my reputation is by doing presentations, as you know. And so a lot of the presentations would be at banquet halls or at event centers or conference centers, what have you. And so great if I can do and spread my message or, you know, provide education to three, four or 500 people. Fantastic. But now, you know, with posting videos and, and, and uh, information on uh, anything from LinkedIn and from, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter and just things of that type. Instagram. Now I'm able to reach thousands of people, right? And I'll have folks, NARA friends and family across the country that will reach out and say, Hey, Joe, I loved your video. Does this work in California? Does this work in Florida? Can you give me an idea how to do this in Iowa? Right. And so again, that's something that I wouldn't have been able to do that just doing a presentation locally in front of 300 people. Now, when I'm posting these videos onto social media, they're reaching thousands. And so again, going back to your original question, it's amazing the influence that we can have. Amazing how we can be resources across the country. So this has changed the game completely. Yeah, it's it's awesome to see the the podcasts uh, that are popping out. Even even with our our guys in Chicago, it's uh, it's great to see that we actually have a community and and um, and there's good content. Uh, really really good content. Uh, you know, um, we're lucky to have you. You know, you're a prominent attorney and business leader. And your insights are are always amazing, and that's why when when you speak, you always fill the room. Uh, wanted to to get your thoughts, and you know the pandemic uh, shaped the world. It certainly changed the way that that I approach business, and you know it's good to see that the pandemic is is seems to be winding down. And uh, have you seen? a shift or a change in how this has affect the way entrepreneurs bring their ideas to the table. One thing I was, I was reading yesterday, a, a, a new um, company has emerged in, in the real estate space. They got a $20 million boost in venture capital. But what's amazing is that what seemed like a blink of an eye, you know, they basically become a national brokerage. Um, I would say 20 years ago, something like that would be literally impossible yeah. um, for, for someone to be able to do that, to one, raise the capital and scale to that degree. It would take what years. Are, yeah, it would take years. It would take years. And so what are, what are your thoughts in terms of uh, the, the entrepreneur, entrepreneurs uh, after the pandemic and just the ability to raise capital so quickly and, and get their ideas to market? Well, you know, I'll I'll uh, I'll talk about the latter part of that that question. Really, the ability to raise capital is phenomenal. We are seeing within the Latino space, outside of the Latino space, you're seeing so many venture capital groups. Um, you know, locally in Chicago, we have something called Angeles Investors, which they're looking to 
raise and invest capital within Latino with Latino entrepreneurs, right? So that is starting to scale up um, from what I've seen. I've just started to get involved with them, but you know, through NAREP, we have Latitude Ventures and Latitude Ventures has been investing again in the Latino space. Um, but you're seeing more opportunities for entrepreneurs to raise capital quickly. And again, if we're restricting ourselves to the Latino community, you know, years back, it was so difficult for so many folks to really be able to scale right on a, on a significant uh, pace at or at a significant pace. But now because of the fact that there is money out there and especially when you're talking about entrepreneurs, so something that we have the state of Hispanic homeownership report, which comes out, which NARA produces. So it has shown that over the last 10 years, about 72% of brand new businesses are Latino owned. Okay. And of that 72%, a good percentage, I think it's right around 80% are Latinas. So they really are pushing the envelope, right? They're really pushing these issues. But because so many of these Latinos are going ahead and creating new businesses, there's a need. And some of them did not have the ability or the knowledge of how to be able to scale. They didn't have the resources. Um, you know, at first it was more, let's raise money from family, maybe go to the bank, try to borrow something against my house, things like that. But now as we've become more sophisticated and there has been more resources spread out there through, again, different medium where now people can find these things. Now they're finding access to capital because why they're driving the space. They are really pushing uh, the industry and the economy, the econo they're the economic engine, really. And so now a lot of these investors, venture capital groups, they want to invest in them. So now we're now the, the goal is really to put them together. And I think we're seeing more and more of that. In terms of entrepreneurs' mindset, how has coming out of the pandemic or during the pandemic, how has it changed or shifted? It's amazing, Alex, because you know, one of my practice areas is business and corporate work. And so two years ago, I had people saying, oh my gosh, this pandemic, I'm sure that part of your business is suffering. And I said, no, it's actually quite the contrary because just like every other time, every other challenging time in history, there's always opportunities, right? There's, there are always going to be opportunities when things shift and there was a significant shift. And so people saw these opportunities and I'll give you an example. Um, restaurants obviously were hit and have been hit pretty hard, but there have been some that came out gangbusters that actually have double, triple that bought and set up more restaurants. I have a, a client of mine that, and, and I thought this was a great example. So, you know, he was heavily reliant on people that would come and sit down, right? And then he realized I need to shift. I need to be more efficient and effective online. My website, I have to be able to do to take orders, right? If people can't come in and sit down, I've got to be able to do master delivery. And so he did that and he really updated everything in his website. And then he even created an app, which again, was so impressive. And he mastered that and he did so well with that, that it almost doubled what he used to do on a sit down basis. Then when things opened up, now he said, Joe, I feel like I have two restaurants. I've got my online delivery and I've got my in-person sit down. So I'm kind of managing two restaurants. But then on top of that, because he had so much business going on, he decided, you know, it's a great time for me to go ahead and expand and create another, buy another location. So he found another location, great rate. And he was able to buy all of his kitchen equipment. Nobody else was out there really competing against him. So that was an opportunity for him to buy equipment at half the cost. And so that was his vision. He expanded. And now he actually has three restaurants because it's just been going gangbusters. Now, again, that's one example. But then in other spaces too, 
I would see clients that just because they realized, okay, I need to overcome, I need to adapt. They really became a lot more proficient at technology, right? And which, as we said earlier, that expands your, your reach. So I had clients that were producing products that now were able, they were so adept online that now they were selling products across the country. Now they had orders coming in across the country. Now they were featuring the orders. They developed a website or they improved their website, right? It was a static website. Now they made it more interactive, things of that type. But really entrepreneurs now, um, I think, especially those that went through the tougher times and now came out on top, have learned how to adapt, which is just an invaluable skill. Um, but again, opportunities were created where niches weren't, uh, where, where people had to see, hey, there's an opportunity, there's a niche there. I had one of my clients who they were in plastics, okay? And you want to talk about an incredible success story. This gentleman owned a plastics manufacturing company, right? A plant, uh, a warehouse. And so he had some contracts here and there with stores and what have you, probably had about 45 employees. He was bidding for a contract with the state of Illinois. And he wound up getting this, this smaller contract. Well, when the pandemic hit, those plastics now, you know, when you had to take all of the COVID tests and everything, and they and then they had to dispose of all of the testing kits, they started using his plastic bags. So he went from having 40 or some employees to having about 250. Why? Because he was in the right space and just went gangbusters, right? Because they had to produce these plastics. So again, you know, that, that's just sheer timing, uh, sheer luck as well to be in the, in the right industry. But again, people would see a need and then they would fill that void. They would go ahead and develop a niche that maybe somebody else hadn't thought about. So it really has been a great learning um, opportunity for a lot of folks. And some folks really have just adapted their business or their shift or their mindset, and then they've overcome. And which, which is great because now we have all of these entrepreneurs that have been battle tested, if you will, right? I mean, they went through some tough times, some of them initially, but they learned, they developed these new skills that now they're coming out and they're really just ready to, you know, blow the roof off of them. So, yeah. you know, one thing that I found uh, as I experienced the pandemic and worked with entrepreneurs that when people would say, this is not possible, this is not the way we do things, um, that talk left yeah. now is let me see what's possible. Let me, you know, like for instance, would, would, uh, would people believe that shifting their workforce to work at home would be possible? And actually it's more effective, you know, like um, during this times of mobility, my just personal output as a, as a human being and as, as a worker, somebody working in my company and working with teams increased. Um, And I see, I see it across the board, you know, that, and, and some companies are remaining remote with certain uh, positions or another thing that I found in terms of, you know, let's say from the corporate side, a little bit different from entrepreneurs is that we always looked at finding talent that was geographic, that was reasonably geographically close to our, our base of operations because we needed people to come to the office. Mm-hmm. Um, now I've seen colleagues who are hiring people all over the world, you know, not just the United States, all over the yeah. world. And, and it's just bringing such a, a robust nature uh, to their organizations. And I think that it's fueling growth because you're able to get talent everywhere. Ha- have you seen that 
uh, phenomenon firsthand, you know, as far as like just opening up the talent pool that, you know, the world is really smaller now. Yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely have um, just because friends and colleagues of mine that have businesses have been able to, as you said, they've been able to tap into resources throughout the world. You know, now they have seen, okay, perhaps this job or this role used to have this kind of, all right, this was the set schedule or this is how you operate it. And now it's opened their mind. Now they, they realize, okay, this can be accomplished somewhere else. And as a matter of fact, this may make somebody more efficient and effective um, if they have a different mindset or if they're in a different geographic location. Um, so we've started to see that. I mean, I know a, a lot of my friends who have been working from home in their companies, really, they have just said how they feel they've become so much more effective, so much more uh, productive, just as you said, because they feel, you know, I'm. some of them have said, you know, I eliminated my driving to and from the office. That's another hour, two hours I can use. Now I'm able to focus a little bit more without some distractions. And listen, maybe it's great to see my colleagues in the office, but sometimes we would just kind of, you know, waste time chatting or this or that. And now I feel like I'm really just everything I'm trying to do is get it into my time frame that I have at home because I know I have a schedule, whether I have family or kids or anything like that. So I need to make sure that I'm productive during that time. And so absolutely, people have really looked at, you know, can this job, can this role be accomplished in a different way, right? Is there a different way to do it? Maybe I had a certain set of metrics or skills or requirements that I required before to fill this role. Now I'm realizing perhaps a different set of skills will actually be able to accomplish this in a more effective manner. Um, and, and I'll even say, you know, personally, so I have always done consultations with clients. I'll pick a day of the week that I would stay late in the office and I'd meet with clients because you know, I didn't want them to have to take a day off of work and things like that. But as my practice has expanded and, you know, I'm all over Illinois, you know, one of the things that was always a challenge is geographically, if I had, you know, one office, <clears throat> having people from further away from different suburbs, maybe wanting to come see me, maybe they, that would take them 30, 45 minutes. Well, this pandemic changed everything, right? Because just like on this medium, uh, we started looking at Zoom. And so then we started using Zoom for client consultations. And so I'd say, all right, go ahead and download Zoom. We're going to do a consultation. So I'm in Chicago and you're in Aurora, you're in Plainfield, you're in Joliet, you're in Lake Geneva, wherever you are, let's go ahead. I'll send you the link. And this is how we will communicate. We will have a consultation that way. So it completely changed the game. It changed the game. Again, for me, for a smaller practice, but I've seen it with other folks who are working in Fortune 500 companies, you know, just colleagues of mine and how they're handling their business. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it, it's uh, even the, the, the times that normally back in the day where I would just have a phone call, to be able to have a Zoom, this video conferencing aspect of it, even if it's just a casual phone call to be able to pick up, there's just more work and more quality of, of connection with contacts and coworkers. Uh, but, but certainly um, zoom, uh, I think it was the right technology for the right time. Yeah. And Hey man, you give me a, a, a ring light and a microphone and a camera and I could work anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's listen. That's what I have my conference room. You mentioned a ring light. I've got my camera. I've got my laptop. I'm ready to go. There you go. There you go. You know, um, we're lucky to to have you. That you know, you you really are. I would say one of the the brightest minds in housing throughout the country. So I, I want to take this opportunity to ask you some housing related questions and and real estate related questions. Even before the pandemic, 
there was a lot of writing articles about millennials or the younger generation that's coming into the housing market not valuing homeownership per se and rental being a higher option. Like for instance, um, in the community that I live in, there's a big push for the uh, the town and village board to be able to bring in not only affordable rental housing, but luxury rental housing as well. So they, they're looking to, to get the whole gambit of yeah. rental opportunities. Um, and that's a, that's a far departure from, you know, pushing and driving, uh, you know, a home ownership mindset. Um, what is your thoughts in terms of how that's affected the buying, uh, market or buyers coming in as we move out of the pandemic mode? Um, but what have you seen in terms of, just people's um, feelings on homeownership and, you know, not to sound cliche, but is the American dream of homeownership still alive? Well, you know, Alex, I would say, you know, just directly is the homeownership dream still alive? Absolutely. It's morphed quite a bit. It's had, it has its challenges um, because right now, obviously one of the, the, the most extreme thing that we're seeing right now in the housing space is just a shortage of inventory. And so that has, you know, forced prices of homes to really increase significantly in different markets, uh, but pretty much in almost all markets. So that's made it a challenge. And so some folks, you know, maybe some of the millennials that were looking to buy homes have been priced out, which means that then they've had to turn into the rental market. And even the rental market, those prices have skyrocketed because you have so many people vying for that same apartment, that ideal location or what have you. So it has become challenging because again, shortage of inventory. Now you've got all this price appreciation, rents are super high, you know? Um, and so all of these, these confluence of, of factors have taken place, but people still want to be homeowners because it, it really is true. Most folks just appreciate the value of, hey, I'd rather have my home because, you know, when they value or when they really sit down and look at it, or if they have somebody explain it to them, you sit down and the reality is you're always paying a mortgage, Alex, whether you're paying your own mortgage or you're paying somebody else's, right? And so when I've had, when I've had clients or listen, I'm a landlord myself and I've had conversation with some of my tenants when they're looking to buy and I tell them, listen. I'm thankful you've been a great tenant, but I want you to own a home because the reality is you've always been paying a mortgage. You were just paying mine, right? And so they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't think about it that way. And I say, I appreciate you. I thank you, but I want you to expand. I want you to grow. It's your time, right? But, but I say that to clients and I say that to people all the time is that you really have to think about it that way is there are some, there are some folks who are concerned, well, I don't know, I'm going to have this obligation every month and it's a lot of responsibility. And I say, listen, you've been fulfilling that responsibility all along. You've been paying your rent on time, haven't you? It's the exact same thing. So you were paying a mortgage, just not your own. So now let's focus on creating your wealth, getting equity, right? Wouldn't it be great to purchase this home and all of a sudden you already have 10% equity in that house? That means you have something. And if you pay that for the next 20 years, you are close to paying it off, or maybe you have paid it off and you've got all this equity. Whereas if you've been paying rent for 10, 20 years, what do you have to show it for it at the end? Not much, right? So <clears throat> I think that the American dream is alive and kicking. I think people are really excited to go ahead and buy homes. The challenge is to find them, right? And try to find something that's a little bit more affordable. Some folks are having to expand their search 
which isn't necessarily a bad thing because now we're seeing maybe some cities, maybe some suburbs that were ignored before. Now they're gaining more attention. Right. And so that's not a bad thing because then you're also seeing some more development in those areas. Perhaps folks, as we were talking about earlier, because they're working at home, they're willing to venture out further. Now they're not restricted. Now there isn't a geographic requirement that I need to be two miles away from my workspace. Right now I can work from anywhere. So maybe I'm willing to go ahead and live in a home an hour away from where my office is located because I never need to go to the office. So that has created different opportunities as well. So I think it really, again, home ownership, the idea, the dream is alive and kicking. It's morphing in different ways and different fashions because, again, people's needs are changing. Um, but I think overall, you still have that dream. If you know whether you look at at um, whether you look at U.S. citizens, it's always been the goal. Whether you look at immigrants when they come in, you know, a, a good friend of ours, you know, Jerry Asensio, a NARP national president, has always said. <clears throat> for immigrants, nobody comes to the United States saying, I want to be a renter. No, you come for a piece of the American dream, right? To own a home, to have that white picket fence. That's the goal, right? So again, whether you were born here, whether you're a citizen or whatever, or whether you come as an immigrant, everybody still has that same goal to own a piece of the American pie, which is really home ownership. That's a, absolutely. And, <clears throat> and uh, as we learn from, you know, let's say the, the NARAP Hispanic Wealth Project and the 10 it's the foundation to build on because then you're talking about building personal wealth and, and investments and it's, it expands to so much more. But hey, you know what, as they say, home is where the heart is. That's where your family is. That's where your memories are built. And it, it is so meaningful to our communities to have a vested ownership in, into that home. You know, uh, when the pandemic hit, I think even myself and, and many people, started to get um, a little bit of, of, of flashback memories of the Great Recession and what could happen. Um, and, you know, when as things started to unfold, you know, in, in March of um, 2020 and, and you started to get layoffs, um, I think two, two things really helped. And, and one was the the government helping out with subsidies and, and giving and, and being able to, to infuse cash um, was very helpful. But something that I think was understated and people really didn't talk about the positive effect was the immediate um, bank stepping up and offering for forbearances. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And, and for, for just for the benefit of anyone listening, if you could explain what a forbearance is and if do you think that helped stave off another great recession type uh, event in our economy? So, no, I think that's a fantastic question, Alex. Uh, a forbearance really is an agreement between a mortgage, uh, someone who has a mortgage, right? So the homeowner and the mortgage holder, the, the bank. It's an agreement to not have to make a certain amount of payments. So the traditional forbearances that we were seeing or the majority of forbearances, the banks would say, listen, we'll give you six months of not having to make payments. Sometimes it was a year of not having to make payments, right? But essentially it was an agreement between the homeowner and their lender to not have to make payments for a certain amount of time. Now those payments would be recaptured by the lender whether it would be at the end of the loan when they eventually sell the home or pay off the mortgage. Uh, perhaps it would have to be repaid within a certain amount of time. They might say, we'll give you two years to pay that back. 
Um, so there were all different kinds of forms of forbearance, but essentially a forbearance is an agreement where the lender agrees to allow the homeowner to not have to make a certain amount of payments. And then they would have an agreement to recapture them later on or over a period of time. Right. So that was the idea to say, listen, we're going to give you a breather right now. You don't have to make the, six, the next six months mortgage payments or the next year's worth of mortgage payments because we know the pandemic may be affecting um, your work, your employment, maybe you were laid off, maybe hours were cut um, in your industry. And so that that's what, what how it was set up. And uh, I think now there's two things to your question, right? In terms of the Great Recession, did I think that we were going to be close to it or that we were going to have a repeat of what happened in 2007, 2008? I never personally felt that we were going to do that because we just had different fundamentals that were out there. That was so much more in 2000, 2008 about houses that really were inappropriately priced, people qualifying for mortgages that they couldn't afford. Those factors didn't exist now. So now what you had was the challenge of, yeah, an economy may be affected, jobs may be affected by a pandemic. It was a little bit different, but you know, the forbearance did allow a lot of folks to go ahead and have a breather, right? And, and, and you know, in, in March of 2019, when we saw, or I mean, when everything started happening in the real estate space, there were transactions that were falling apart. We had it happen in my office. We probably had three or four transactions where we were ready to close today, Thursday, and, you know, 8.30 in the morning, we had a phone call from our client saying, I just got a notice that I've been laid off. That happened. Right. Or I got to notice that my company is shutting down in two weeks. That happened. So that first March, April, May of the pandemic really were uncertain times. And it was a little concerning. And then in June, July, everybody kind of started to, to understand it a little bit better. Businesses started to acclimate. And then it became gangbusters. It just shut off there from August, September. And it's, it's been, you know, and to the present time, it's been pretty crazy. But again, forbearance did allow a lot of folks who needed that extra breathing room, it allowed them to survive. It allowed them to weather the storm because what we did find is, yeah, there were a number of folks who lost jobs or maybe their hours were reduced or cut, but yet there were some that really, their hours revved up, right? Depending on the industry that they were in. Some folks maybe lost a job where they were making you know, X. Now they went into another industry and now they were making X plus 10. So it actually worked out well for them. Um, and so we started seeing that where the forbearance, it did allow a lot of folks to have breathing room that they needed, um, even if they didn't need it. Some folks, they just weren't sure. And so the bank offered them the forbearance. I'll take it for three months. Hey, three months later, fast forward, my company's doing fine. I don't need any more forbearance. Great. So it really gave folks an opportunity to go ahead and try to weather the storm for those that absolutely needed it. And even for those that didn't, because of the uncertainty, they took it maybe or maybe said, I don't need a forbearance, but I appreciate it. Right. And so it did allow for a lot of folks to be able to to do well, to survive if they were struggling. Um, so, and it did, I would say that it definitely staved off what could have been a recession. Again, the factors were different. And, and so we've seen it now that, you know, there, it'd be completely different scenarios between 2007 and now, even though early on there were folks that were saying, oh my gosh, this is going to be the same thing, a repeat of the recession. The fundamentals were completely different. This wasn't, you know, people overpaying for houses that didn't have the value. This wasn't people who were qualifying for mortgages that they couldn't afford. None of those things. Those things all, they didn't exist exist this time around. So, but a forbearance, the concept for forbearance was very important in keeping people in their homes. Absolutely.
Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and great, great um, review on, on what the whole process is. So thank you. Thank you for that. You know, part of this year, I've had two themes in my podcast, and one is uh, diversity and inclusion and talking about um, as a second track is, is laying out the entrepreneur's blueprint for success. And what's great about having you on the show is that you represent both uh, amazingly. So thank you for that. And I wanted to, to shift our conversation. Um, it, you know, it, I, there's a lot of conversations I, I see with my colleagues. One, you know, to be an entrepreneur. And the other is to rise the corporate ladder and and really be successful in corporate America. And what I found is that developing your leadership ability, developing um, your your strength to be able to to be a a power team player, to get work done and, and projects completed, it all starts with leadership, discipline, and growing who you are. And you, you have a tremendous story of success, but you've been a mentor and have seen so many amazing leaders who have blossomed throughout the years that I think both of us are very proud of. Um, but just in a shift for our conversation, you have really been the, the, the proverbial fly on the wall and you've seen people grow to, you know, I think we have a, a colleague who started out as a real estate agent became number one real estate in the in agent in the country, then owned a tech company. And this just the the growth and and uh has been absolutely amazing. When when you see individuals like that, what is the the DNA? Like what is the spark inside of a person like that who can just continue to grow and and bust the boundaries that just you know you wouldn't think that that A could get to that point, you know, like they're starting an A position that they could get to that point. What's that DNA, like the basic spark that makes that happen? Well, I'll tell you, I think no matter how you slice it, no matter how you describe it, the number one thing, I think the first thing that you have to have is the drive, right? You have to have that drive and desire, you know, in Spanish, we'll often say the ganas, right? But you have to have that drive, that desire, that ganas to want to do it. Um, because if you don't have that, you're not going to get anywhere. I, you can look at any great leader, you know, folks that we know, folks that we read about, they have all had the drive. It is very, very rare, almost impossible to find someone who became an incredible success story that didn't work hard in some way, shape or fashion. Um, and, and, and so I think that's the first thing you have to have that drive, that work ethic to want to go ahead and succeed. The other thing though, too, is as you're expanding, you also have to have vision. You have to have you have to have somebody. You have to be someone that sees opportunities, right? So again, like we were saying in this pandemic, whether you saw a niche a need, something that needed to be filled, you developed it. Perhaps you felt, hey, this client or this market segment is being underserved. Why? Because who knows? Marketing materials aren't in their language, or you know, uh, whatever, uh, paperwork isn't set up to be understandable for them. It's not straightforward, whatever it is, maybe you modified paperwork, maybe you modified a marketing scheme or, or plan, right? And once you did that, you tapped into that segment. But again, it's always having a vision of where the market is going. Maybe you see that niche, maybe you see that need and you fill that space. So I think that's one thing that's going to make a great leader as well. And the other thing that that 
makes a lot of the great leaders that you and I know is folks that also are willing to do a couple of things. They are willing to go ahead and say, I need to delegate, which listen, it's something that I struggle with all the time, but I'm very fortunate and blessed. I have a great staff that I can delegate a lot of my work to, right? And that I can focus on maybe some of the more important issues, but being able to delegate because it's very, very hard to maintain success and continue to grow if you don't let some of that go and have other folks that you trust and that hopefully you've already prepared, you've trained and equipped to help you continuing in, in the continuation of your success, um, you have to be able to delegate, right? You need to be able to do that. That's one of the things that leaders have to do. They have to learn how to delegate, but then they also have to learn how to manage as well, right? You want to, you don't want to be removed where you just turn over the reins and say, okay, you guys take care of it. I'm leaving. No, you want to make sure that you're still involved, but because you're looking for those other opportunities, you're looking to see what else you can develop, right? As we said, if, you know, a colleague who went from an incredible producer that said, hey, I'm going to go into another industry because he saw that there were opportunities in other industries and decided to go ahead. How do I now succeed in that industry? How do I you know, climb the mountain there? So I think it's, again, first and foremost for me in any, and in any field is you really have to have the drive, that desire. You know, secondly, you really have to be able to delegate. You have to be able to go ahead and do that. You need to be have, able to have the vision to see opportunities so you can grow. But as you're growing and you're a leader, you want to establish a good team. So you have to either mentor or you train well. Um, you have to also give a trust opportunity, trust people and the team that you develop so that they can go ahead and manage you can administer, and then you can look for other opportunities that are out there. So, I mean, there, there's some common skills and common themes as, as I'm talking, as I'm mentioning to folks like that, but, but you really have to see it. I, I'm a huge fan. Uh, one of my favorite books that I've read is by Malcolm Gladwell, Outliers. Mm. And you know, in, in Outliers, there's this whole concept of 10,000 hours. If you want to be great at something, you have to do it 10,000 hours. And so, you know, they talk about the Beatles. Right. And so everybody thinks, gosh, the Beatles were this incredible band and, you know, they just hit it at the right time and what have you. But what people don't understand or what they underestimate or often don't know is really all the work they put in to become the Beatles, to have that strong foundation. So the 10,000 hours for them is before they became the Beatles, they were playing in all kinds of shows, clubs, you know, festivals. In, in, in Europe, in Germany, in England, they were playing festivals where there would be festivals that were three-day festivals and they were playing six, eight hours straight. I mean, when they were young guys, you know, playing like crazy, making no money, but they put in their 10,000 hours of just becoming better at their, their, you know, as musicians, just becoming better guitarists, better singers, better performers, 10,000 hours, right? And so that's the thing that people don't see. And, and so you have to put in the time. One of the stories that they follow in Outliers is, is Bill Gates, right? How did Bill Gates become Bill Gates? So Bill Gates was somebody who he had the vision early on of understanding coding and the importance of computers, but he also had some luck. And that's something that I didn't say that, you know, everybody has to have a bit of luck as well, because Bill Gates early on, young high schooler, understood and was really passionate about coding and computers. Now he lived in this affluent area where the mother's club raised money to buy a computer at the school at a time when only universities had computers. And there was only five or six universities across the country that had like a significant computer, but the parents club, uh, the mother's club raised money for a smaller computer. So he became more proficient there. 
And then he lived not too far away from the University of Washington, which was one of the universities that actually had this supercomputer. So he would sneak out as a high school student, go there, do more coding, more learning and playing with the computer. So much so that they became friends, I believe, with like security guards and then the professors that were handling this. And so when the time came for computing and coding and everything to be the rage or be needed, he was there. He and his group of friends, they were prepared because they had spent all of these 10,000 hours already learning how to code and program. They understood it before anybody else did, right? And then the break was, hey, or the, the luck was University of Washington was there. He lived in a more affluent area where they were able to buy a computer there. But again, he built off of that. He put in the time. So that's why I think no matter how you look at it, you have to put in the time. You have to have that desire. You have to have that drive because I think that's the first and foremost thing. If you don't have that, I just don't see how you can succeed. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. You know, um, one of the things that that I've done or, or I've talked about is you know, practice makes perfect. And in a lot of that time that you put into the, that ten thousand hours is is so right, you know, right on. And and being able to develop your skills, like you know, one of the things that I do, I, I have this app that guides me through reading a certain amount of books a month. So, you know, and, and it keeps on reminding me, hey, you're, you're falling behind. You got to get catch up, you know, a certain percentage. And it, it gives me the percentage as the month goes along, you know, yeah. you're 50% per go. And, you know, so reading, feeling yeah, yeah, feeling pressure, you know, but I find that, you know, reading, listening to podcasts, I also have a, a personal business coach who, you know, I meet on a monthly basis and we, we hash out ideas. What are, what are things that you're seeing, you know, in top, on top of the 10,000 hours, but what are some of the, the, some basic tactics or, or things that leaders will do to enhance their skills and raise the bar? Like, what's that process of, you know, like, let's say if you were an athlete, they're, they're working out every day. What is a, an entrepreneur or a leader, an individual on a leadership track do on a daily basis to enhance their skills to get better? Well, you know, I think the thing that most leaders would tell you that they do on a daily basis is learn. They learn in some way, shape or form, right? Whether it's reading more books, maybe it's listening more podcasts, um, as you mentioned that you're doing. Um, maybe it's having more meetings with people that understand concepts that I don't understand or that they're more adept at it, right? Maybe it is watching videos. Maybe it is watching a motivational person that really kind of gets me more centered or focused on what I want to accomplish. So I can break it down into steps, but I think it's always a function of learning. Um, I definitely see right now, a lot of the leaders, a lot of the folks, the entrepreneurs that are growing, they seem to be doing that. They seem to be, Hey, right now, maybe I'm looking to develop this new product line. So I'm talking to folks that understand this better than I do. Right. I think it's there. There's a lot of truth to, to um, you know, the, the phrase when people will say, you'll hear leaders that'll say, if I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm doing something wrong, right? Because I want to learn from others. I want to learn from others. And so that's why I bring other people who are great at this, right? I don't want to be a great, I mean, I'm not going to sit here focusing on doing taxes if I'm trying to develop marketing plans, right? I've got somebody that can focus on that. I have to trust a good person will do that for me because now I need to go and develop this marketing plan. 
But the reality is that I think most entrepreneurs, most leaders that are growing, expanding, succeeding, they're always looking to learn some way, shape or form information, whether it's they're partnering up with influencers. And, you know, that's another thing that's really coming out of this pandemic, too, is I think we've seen more folks having an open mind about joint ventures or maybe doing some cross marketing or cross selling or cross training. Right. So it could be someone I mean, I, I've read great stories if, if we want to do in the sports world. I've read stories about some athletes who, you know, we would say big, strong athletes. And you think, all right, they're always just, you know, pumping weights and doing all this stuff, right? Pumping iron. Um, And then they'll say, listen, some of the best skill or some of the best body development that I've had, or perhaps some of the best um, self-discipline I've done yoga, I've done Pilates, right? So it's not something like, oh, I'm benching 400 pounds. It's I'm learning how to really structure my body, how to control my muscles, how to breathe. Even maybe it's, maybe it's just, uh, you know, just learning how to focus your mindset right before you play. And so I'm seeing more leaders that really are just evolving because again, if we go back to earlier in our conversation, there's so many resources out there from the podcast, from books, from, you know, uh, I, I just, my, I just signed up for this thing called mastermind, right. And this, or I'm sorry, masterclass and masterclass is this great. And you've probably seen this concept, right. But it's great because you can go ahead, you pay for this masterclass. You have these classes and different subject matters that are being taught by subject matter experts, right? So if I want to learn chess, I have a chess grandmaster that's teaching it, right? If I want to learn how to play basketball, I've got this incredible NBA MVP teaching me how to dribble. If I want to learn about negotiation, I've got an incredible world leader who talks about diplomacy. So it is out there. There are so many different kinds of resources. I think right now that's what we're seeing. A lot of leaders are trying to find resources, whether it's through training, whether it's through education, whether it's through relationship building. Um, but there's just so many different ways you can do it right now. You know, um, in terms of uh, success, you know, when you, you talk about wanting to make sure that you're not the smartest person in the room and you're, you're learning from others. Usually when I'm in, when I'm in a room with you, you're that you are the smartest guy in the room. So, <laughs> so I, I've learned a lot from you and, you know, like if, if you can tell us a little bit about, you, you know, your success and some of the, the things that you've learned along the way, you, you know, I mean, we haven't really touched about this in, in the podcast, but truly, you know, in terms of uh, a legal mind and an advocate for housing in the community, um, you've, you've truly been uh, like a, a pillar in, in our community and being a voice uh, for housing, being a voice for, for inspiration and enhancing entrepreneurs and uh, leaders, not only in the private and public sector, uh, you know, you've done, you've done so much, but can you tell us a little bit about your story of success and some of the important lessons you've learned along the way? Sure. You know, so, um, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm happy to do that. It's, you know, I always think it's kind of boring because I think we all have incredible stories and mine is no more interesting than anybody else's, but I'm happy to share it because I think that's something that's very important, right? Um, so I was born and raised in the little village, right? A predominantly Mexican neighborhood, poor neighborhood. So there's all kinds of challenges when you're coming from the inner city and you're coming from a neighborhood where maybe English isn't the primary language. Uh, so you have to overcome a lot of obstacles. So I wasn't, 
you know, I decided to go into the practice of law, which I didn't come out having gone to country clubs or growing up with that or having, you know, my friends, my parents' friends being, you know, leaders or business leaders or business owners or all these things, a little bit different. So when I, um, you know, I had the good fortune of always being a very good student and trying my best and I've gone to some great schools. And so when I became an attorney, I started at, at one of the premier law firms in the country here in Chicago. And, you know, I learned a lot from folks that were just extremely advanced, but they, it was a different world. I just wasn't exposed to that. You know, it was just different from, you know, this white shoe law firm and how people had contacts and they went golfing and all this stuff. I didn't understand any of that. So it was a challenge for me. And, but the one thing that I always felt was important is I would see how Latinos in the community were growing, right? And I could see, again, just that was my background. That's who I was. And I could see how people were expanding. So I thought, all right, I'm going to develop that niche. And especially at that time, diversity, this is, you know, we're talking about the late 90s, early 2000s. Diversity was not what it is now. It was more, it was really more of a buzzword. Um, and so it was interesting because, you know, at one of the firms that I was at, I really started pushing the envelope to say, let's create a diversity community or diversity committee within the firm. And so my thinking was, hey, you take the talents of these incredibly diverse group of people that are phenomenal attorneys, first and foremost, and that have a diverse background. And if we can use that, maybe we can use that as a good selling point, a good marketing point. Well, I'll fast, I mean, I, I won't belabor that too much, but I wound up being labeled a bit of a troublemaker because I was gathering all these people and trying to organize them. I was like, it was almost like if I was a union organizer. And, uh, but at the time, the firm just really wasn't ready for something like that. They would say they were, but they weren't, right? And so anyway, so the big firm world was not for me. I just, it, I didn't like it. It was constricting and, you know, and I wanted to really work in the Latino space. I wanted to do things kind of on my own terms. And, uh, and I was also frustrated because they didn't give me the support that I felt they should. And, and I thought, hey, I'm trying to help the firm and, and you guys are kind of labeling me or punishing me for it. Anyway. So fast forward. So I go off and I start my practice and I've been really fortunate to have my practice over 20 years now. I've really focused on more of the business side, the, the corporate, the transactional side, if you will, because I just felt that there were enough attorneys that were maybe handling some of the traditional, you know, perhaps it was immigration or family law or things of that stuff. Um, I wanted to do, and I wanted to be more of the transactional attorney for the Latino community. And so that's where I started really developing things. Um, I would see that a lot of our business owners, they just didn't have enough information, maybe enough sophistication or education or awareness of resources. And so I wanted to become that. And that's what I started doing. I really started doing a lot of seminars and presentations on different topics. And, you know, my, my practice areas are business and corporate estate planning, uh, which is wills and trusts and probate work, uh, real estate, obviously, and then some bankruptcy work. You know, I handle some litigation too, but it's usually related towards uh, related to real estate or business uh, uh, litigation and lawsuits. Um, but that's what I wanted to do. And I felt for me early on that it was important to become a resource. It was funny. One of my first, uh, one of the first senior partners I worked for at a big firm, he said, Joe, if you ever want to become an expert, a subject matter expert, give a presentation. He said, listen, because if you give a presentation that says a lot about you, first and foremost, 
very few people have the courage to go ahead and be up there in front of other folks to speak. So everybody's going to assume that you're the subject matter expert. And even those that may know more than you or may think that you don't, you're not a subject matter expert, they're not going to question you in front of an audience. So go and give a presentation. And I always took that to heart. And it's been something I've never been afraid of public speaking. It's always been something that I've appreciated and you know enjoyed. And so right away, my thought was, we need more resources. I need to provide education. How do I enhance my practice and help the community at the same time? And that's what I started doing. I started doing presentations on different topics. Um, I, and really, I think that's how you and I met, really, because we started you know, crossing paths and we were at different events and things like that. And uh, so that's been the biggest thing for me is really trying to be a resource, trying to provide education, uh, trying to be good at what I do, right? When I would see issues and justices, things like that, I would go ahead and try to lend my voice to it. We were both involved in something in, in the uh, 2000s, right? We were involved with initiative HB 4050 when they had created, you know, after 2007 and eight, when all the foreclosures were happening, you know, some of our elected officials came up with this idea of we're going to force education on folks. And, you know, we're looking at places where foreclosures were happening and they took these 10 zip codes. They had a good idea, but they didn't implement it properly. And what they wound up doing was really punishing the people in those areas. And unfortunately, those areas were heavily Hispanic and African-American. And so, you know, something like that to me was an injustice. So I sued the state of Illinois and, you know, long story short, all that stuff was gone. But whenever there have been opportunities where communities were being abused or taken advantage of, or if there were statutes or if there were regulations um, where, you know, uh, again, different communities and especially Hispanic community, which I do quite a bit of business in, um, I wanted to make sure that I would protect, help, or be a voice. And so that's been something that's that's guided me in my career. And, and, you know, I've been very fortunate. So I'm very thankful because I've met some incredible people. I've made some great friendships, some great clients. Some, I've learned some great stories and learned a lot of lessons about life. And, you know, and I have great friends like you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Joe. It's uh, been great to have you on uh, the Digital Salsa Radio podcast. Uh, it's a, a thrill and an honor to have uh, uh, your great insights and uh, such a good friend for for so many decades, I I am going to hold you to um, uh, when we both get our dream cars that we drive down Michigan Avenue together. That would be also cars. Great, Let's do it, a, Alan. A great a great picture a great picture to have. And thank you to to all our guests today. I hope you enjoyed this show. Uh, in the uh, program description, I, I will have uh, Joe Neary's link to his LinkedIn. So if you want to follow him and, and reach out to him, you, you can uh, feel free to do so. He is a, a tremendous resource and in, in, in so many insights in many different areas. Um, thank you for following us. Please like us and uh, visit us again. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to DS Radio. We're on the air for success. 